the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. Well, good morning. It's lovely to see you. Uh, my name's Nick Goldsworthy. I'm a member of the leadership team and the staff team here at Belmont. As has already been revealed, we are starting a new series. We're looking at the subject of mental well-being. And we're doing it, as Laura's reminded us, through a whole series of things. We're doing it through interview. We're doing it through reflections alongside four Old Testament passages uh, where we'll be reminding ourselves that we worship a God who sees and hears a God who is with us in the midst of all of the brokenness of our fallen world. Now, quite recently, I came across um, a summary report detailing the findings of a research project looking into the effects of COVID-19 on mental well-being of people like ourselves. And the headline was this, COVID-19 pandemic has devastating effects on mental health, study shows. People in the UK have experienced a substantial decrease in mental well-being since the start of the COVID pandemic. When you then went into the body of the report, one of the the medical research team wrote this. People's mental health worsened during the first wave of the pandemic and the second wave was associated with an increase in the prevalence and variability of psychological distress. So the pandemic has had a prolonged detrimental influence on people's mental health. During the first wave of COVID, we found that people's ability to enjoy day-to-day activities and play a useful role were most impacted. In the second wave, people were experiencing problems with decision-making, depression, unhappiness, and poor concentration. And that piece of work, well, it stands alongside a whole load of other studies that come from mental health charities, academic institutions across the country and across the world. And they consistently reveal that cases of clinical mental illness, alongside the more general adverse feelings of um, isolation and loneliness and stress, are on the increase. Now, back in 2018, as Laura mentioned, we launched our first Living with Thorns series. At that time, you know, very, very few churches were recognising the importance of talking about mental well-being, despite the fact that In reality, to some degree or another, the majority of us are likely during the course of our lives to experience times when our mental health will be negatively affected. Now, one of the difficulties that we have in trying to face this, in trying to address this, is that generalizations are really unhelpful. Bouts of mental illness can strike people at any age, from people of all and any walks of life. Sometimes there are no obvious triggers or causes. And whilst for many, of course, the episodes are mercifully brief, for others, they are chronic and they are life-changing. The other problem that we have, of course, and the difficulty is that the Bible doesn't really address the subject of mental well-being directly. Although the fact that we live in a broken and distorted and fallen world does help us very much to understand the context for it. And also, of course, the other problem that we have is that many, and I would include myself in this, don't particularly like to talk about our own personal struggles. It's one of the hardest things, perhaps, for us to do. 
And so, as a result, to some degree or another, we often embrace some really unhelpful responses to issues of mental wellness. We resort sometimes to rather glib and potentially harmful platitudes. It's really easy for us to say, isn't it? Well, of course, all you need is Jesus. Or to say something, well, if you trusted God more, then I'm sure things will be fine. On the face of it, you know, those phrases sound almost spiritual, but they are profoundly unhelpful. Those suffering from poor mental health are so often left feeling in the gap between the spoken and the sung words that fill our church services and the reality of where they are in their daily lives. One way to close that gap is through making room to hear stories of brokenness. And that's part of what we're going to be doing, part of what we're going to be exploring over the next four Sunday mornings. The other part of what we'll be doing is to remind ourselves of God's character by examining four Old Testament narratives alongside four Old Testament Hebrew names for God. Names that speak eloquently of the one who sees and the one who meets us just where we are. And throughout the Bible, we read stories of brokenness. We read about people who fail, people who carry shame, people who experience doubt, people who fear, people who worry, people who feel alone, people who feel unlovable. And the reason why those stories are there within Scripture is because that is the human condition. That is normal. Those are the stories that mark us out. You see, we as God's people are not superhuman. We, like them, are ordinary people looking to follow an extraordinary God. And that's why we need to notice when things are difficult, when life is painful, when we find it tough. We are then in the company of some of the greatest broken people of faith. And telling God's story alongside our story destigmatizes mental health. Through storytelling, we create a culture of normality. Now, that's not a normal that we want to stay in, but it is one that serves to provide for us a way to move forward, I think. Before we turn to our Old Testament passage, I want to remind you of a verse from the New Testament. Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Paul, writing about how we as Christians have within us the good news of the gospel placed there by God's spirit. The spirit that fills the lives of all those who knows Christ. Says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Paula Gooder, the writer, theologian, current canon chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral, commenting on this verse says this. Paul's point is that our cracked, imperfect exteriors are nothing to be ashamed of. They are vital. A well-glazed pot keeps the light in. Only a pot riven with cracks can shine God's light in this world. The cracks let the light out. As Christians, we are not called to be perfect we are called to be who we are with all our cracks and imperfections, knowing that God's glory will shine through those cracks into the world around us. Perhaps we can do more in our brokenness than when we're pretending we have it all together. I'll read that last sentence again. Perhaps we can do more good 
in our brokenness than when we're pretending we have it all together. So with that in mind, I, perhaps you could turn in your Bibles if you wish to. I'm going to read the passage from 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to read 16 verses. So it's 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. I'm going to have the verses on screen if you'd rather follow on screen. You might wish to close your eyes and, and let me um, read it to you. Whatever it is you want to do, that's absolutely fine as we just engage with this passage of Scripture. Uh, so here we go. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, so there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, to me, this story um, is one of remarkable provision. And that may be true on the one hand, but also, I think, it's also a story that carries some interesting and pretty down-to-earth advice. It's not hard to imagine that Elijah's idea of what was going to happen immediately after his encounter with the king that we read about in verse 1 was nothing like the story that we've read together, or even the continuation of his life story as it unfolds over the next few chapters. And I do wonder sometimes if maybe we find ourselves in very similar positions where our expectations and the expectations of others as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus is nothing at all like the reality that we experience. And so this section of the story shows us that God's plans are often very surprising. So surely, now that Elijah has been called by God, 
He has heard his call. He has responded. He has been chosen to be one of God's prophets, one of God's mouthpiece to the people. I would imagine that he was guessing there would be more to the role than simply to turn up in the presence of the king and speak one sentence. But that's what happens. And why was it that after calling him away from his hometown of Tishbe to travel to the capital, to Samaria, to go into the presence of the king, was God now sending him into the wilderness? A journey that was geographically a backward step, since he would actually, from the Kerith Ravine, only need to walk a few miles upstream, and he would get to the point where he would start it, Tishbe. I think, in part, the lessons we can draw from this story are all about how God remains at work, even in times of scarcity, where our physical, mental, and emotional levels are at their lowest, when we perhaps, rather like Elijah, find ourselves in the wilderness. I don't think that for one moment it's a coincidence that the name Kerith means place of cutting. Because for Elijah, this was a place of pain and a place of confusion. And then as we go on in the story, as if living by the ravine wasn't surprising enough, when the brook eventually dries up, he directs Elijah north to go and live in Zarephath. A town whose name means place of testing. A town situated in a foreign country. A place where God's name was neither spoken nor God worshipped. This would be a place where God would demonstrate his provision and where Elijah would once again experience something of Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And God's provision in these places is remarkable. I think the stories just serve to remind us that ultimately God is the source of all that we have. Look at verse 4. You will drink from the brook as I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food. And then verse 9. I have instructed a widow to supply food. Both of these provisions are basic in their scope, and yet they are surprising in their source. God saw to it that Elijah had enough. Now, it's important to remember that for Elijah, a raven was an unclean bird. If you were to read your scriptures back then, you would discover that no Israelite could eat a raven since it was a carrion bird. And yet, despite the fact, God chooses ravens to bring Elijah his food. And I think, once again, there's a a lesson to be seen here, which may perhaps at first glance uh, just be of little detail or of no importance. Notice, Elijah isn't being asked to break the food law. But he is being asked to ensure that he forms a correct perspective about God. So the use of the ravens is God's way of gently leading Elijah, I think, towards what's coming next. Because in Zarephath, he'd find himself in a foreign country. He'd find himself in a place that most Israelites would have assumed that was outside of God's sphere of activity. He would live in a house of a widowed woman, someone whose status in the community would be pretty much nothing. And somewhere, of course, his presence within the house would be viewed with great suspicion. 
And yet it's into this situation God reveals his life-giving provision. Verse 12 reveals the seriousness of the situation. The widow says, I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Recalling our stories and the stories of the Bible, I think, remind us that God hasn't finished with us yet. Faith is a journey. It's one that takes us in very surprising directions, as Elijah found out. And we need to remember that God is at work in us, even if, at times, we are unable to see it. God is constantly transforming us. And whilst for us there may be no get-out-of-jail card available, there may be no easy answers to some of life's pains and struggles, when we are finding it difficult... Faith isn't the opposite of difficulty. It's integral and it's part of it. It's how we live as Christians. And so whilst the stories of our own lives may not result in miraculous conclusions like the stories that we have read today and the ones, in fact, that we'll look at over the next three Sundays, the Bible is the ultimate story of comfort. It is the story of a God who sees and hears. It is the story of a God who rescues. God is with us in the deep waters. He's with us in the fiery furnace. He gives us sustenance in the valley of the shadow of death. He knows through Christ what it is to be abandoned, betrayed, and in physical and emotional and mental agony. So even despite the brokenness, there's hope. And that is, I think, why we press on. We go one foot after another, day after day, as best we can. It's the hope that's found in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's found in our acceptance of God's rescue plan to restore all things. Apostle Paul, uh, writing in the previous letter to the one that I've quoted from, 1 Corinthians, said this. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then shall I know fully, even as I am fully known. Earlier this week, the singer Jane Marcheski, who under her stage name Nightbird became an overnight singing star following an appearance on American Got Talent, finally lost her battle with cancer at the age of 31. Amongst her blog posts, as she detailed the ups and downs of her five-year struggle with illness, She wrote these words. I believe that God can heal in one instance. I also believe that no good thing does he withhold. So there was something God was growing in the field that is me, that if God had pulled up all of this hardship too soon, it would have also pulled up all these miracles he did in my spirit. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out, fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. When it comes to pain... God isn't often in the business of taking away, instead he adds to it. He is more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness, he adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst, 
he brings water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near.